we often wrestle with the idea of God's judgment. We may perhaps affirm it in a statement of faith or even give public affirmation that we believe that God will judge those who are evil. The problem comes, however, when we understand that we are evil and that we deserve judgment. We have no problem with others being justly judged or justly punished for their wrongdoing. But when the finger gets pointed at us or at our family, things begin to change. Our heart is revealed. We can't stand justice, nor can we stand a God who judges. We want a God of love, a God of compassion and care. We can't, we can't stand the idea of a God who would destroy an entire city or destroy an entire world. We can't think for a moment of a God who would annihilate an entire, pe- an entire people so that another people could take their homes and take their land. We're often fine talking about God as love, but God as judge? It seems so outdated, wrong in this new age that we live in. Friends, you know what I've often found is that those who say that God is love, which means that God loves me, that he would never do the things the Bible says, that those days are over, that God is kind and loving, and he would never do the kind of things that we read in the Old Testament. Well, they're often the same people who shout, God, kill those terrorists. Annihilate those rapists. God, you get those people who kill innocent lives, those sinners out there. You, You see, we don't mind a God of judgment so long as He doesn't judge us. So long as, you know, He's dealing with the evil out there somewhere. Frankly, and honestly, we want a God of love and love only without justice or judgment because we honestly want a God who will leave us alone. We want a God whom we can call up and call Him a friend in times of need. But we can't take it when that same friend speaks the truth into our lives. We love God at a distance. We can't stand God when He comes home with us. When He begins to tell us that how we're living is wrong. We want a domesticated God. One that's been housebroken. One that doesn't give us any problems. A God and country kind of God. A God that will celebrate and be for the kind of things that that we're for as American people. But when that God and His Word speaks the truth about our sin and our willful rebellion, well, frankly, we don't want that God. But friends, that's no God at all. That's no more than a puppet that you play And you do whatever you want Him to do. And frankly, for most Christians, I fear that's the kind of God that you expect. That's the kind of God you think is in the Bible. 
It's why perhaps you've struggled reading Genesis, because you'll find at the very beginning, God is not that kind of God. He is a God who is holy and just and cannot stand sinful people. He's a God of righteousness. Oh, friends, this God, this false God that we see around us every day, that we hear upon the lips of so many so-called Christians, so-called theologians of the Bible, experts. Friends, that's no God at all. And it's the same God, as we'll see today, that Peter faced in the congregations that he wrote to. A God who had been really taken off of his throne because his throne was too holy, too righteous, too just for sinful people to stand before. Up to this point in the letter, Peter has really covered a lot of ground. And so if you're just kind of jumping in with us this morning or if you've been asleep with us the last few weeks, that's okay. I'll get you up to speed. He's made certain of a few matters of first importance. Certainty is a word that really overarches the whole letter, a theme, if you will. Certainty about the truth of God's word. He made certain of their faith. He wanted them to know that they could not, they could believe without a shadow of a doubt that they were saved. They had a certain faith. They could be certain of their election. He grounded it in the eternal work of God. They could be certain of the things the apostles taught them. They could know that these things were true and trustworthy. And upon this foundation, then, Peter will build a foundation. Upon the foundation of divine revelation, Peter warns this beleaguered congregation of the dangers of the false teachers among them. You'll remember from last week, these false teachers uh, were not outside of the church. They weren't on the TV. They were in the pulpit, in the Sunday school classrooms. They were in the small groups. The false teachers had come from within. And they began to lead God's people astray. And we saw that there were really three ways they lead or led God's people astray. First was through licentious living. They told the people in these congregations, that it didn't matter how you lived, you can live however you want, it doesn't matter. God has not called you to holiness, but to continue the life you've already lived. Secondarily, which really follows from licentious living, is that God is not a judge. They taught the people that God does not judge sin. He doesn't care how you live, which means you can live however you want to live. And then based on that, we saw, or we will see in the weeks ahead, that fundamentally they denied the second coming of Christ. They denied that Christ was going to come again to judge the world. And as I hope to show you this morning in God's Word, that simply is not true. God is coming again. Jesus Christ will reign, as we heard so clearly in Revelation chapter 20. That one day God will judge the living and the dead. And so we've seen that Peter is exhorting these congregation to stay alert to the false teaching around them. To stay alert that these false teachers are not coming, but they're here. 
He's exhorted them to stay humble because many will be tempted to go their way. And we saw that it is foolish for us to think that we could not be convinced by false teaching. Do not allow your heart to be so proud as to think you could not be convinced of error. And we saw finally that we are to stay wise because God will judge these men for their willful rebellion of Him and their predatory nature of leading God's people astray. And so... We left last week and we'll pick up this week with that final idea that God will judge. If you have your Bibles open, you can see very quickly in chapter 2 and verse 3, Peter writes, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And so what Peter will do for us today is offer us some historical evidence of the reality of God's future judgment. So we're going to consider that this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2 in verses 4 through 10. And then next week we'll kind of conclude our time with these false teachers by getting at their character. Getting at their character. And this week we're going to get at really undermining their belief system and their understanding of judgment. Of God. So, 2 Peter in chapter 2 and verse 4, hear the word of the Lord. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that, that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of, of defiling passion and despise authority. And so what is Peter's point here? I've summarized it in this way. As we hear God's word, I think this is what Peter is after and what he hopes to teach us today. God's character is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God will forever act according to his character. If God justly judged sinners in the past, then surely He will do so in the future. And if God graciously saves sinners according to His own divine will, His own sovereign purposes, well then, He will in the future graciously save sinners. In short, we could summarize it in this way, God's past activities serve as a promise and guarantee for his future actions. 
God's past activities, the the way God behaved in the past, which reveals his character, gives us guarantee, a promise for his future actions, for which then we can believe and trust. And so this morning, we're going to look at those two characters of God, the display of God's character, if you will, in this passage, both his his just judgment of sinners and his merciful and gracious salvation from his own judgment. So we're going to consider both God's just judgment and his gracious salvation of sinners. And and just so you can see for yourself uh, Peter's structure, I want you to notice something very briefly. If you have your ESV Bible or other Bible in front of you, you're you're going to see the structure uh, very clearly. In verses 4... Five and six, you'll see each of those sentences begin with the word if. If this is true, if this is true, if this is true. And then in verse nine, then this is true. If this is true, if this is true, and if this is true, verse nine, then so also this is true. This is Peter's argument. If God judged in the past, then he'll surely do so in the future. And if God graciously saved sinners in the past, according to his own divine purposes, well then surely he will do so in the future. And so we can trust in him. And with that said, let's begin. God, we see first, God, the holy and righteous judge. In verses 4 through 6, Peter offers us three pieces of evidence from God's past judgment. Three stories that come from the past dealings of God. One prior to biblical revelation, the first one, which comes prior to biblical revelation. Then the the next two coming from divine revelation in the book of Genesis. First, he tells us that God judged sinful angels. There in verse 4, he tells us God did not spare angels when they sinned, but what did he do? He cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. What we see here is that God condemned his angels. Those were his angels. These were beings that God created to minister at his throne, to do his jobs. To minister the where, where he wanted. The word itself means minister. They were ministers. Ministering spirits. They did the will of God. They did the things that God had called them to do. They spent their lives before God in worship. In Revelation, in, in Isaiah 6, and other passages in the Bible, we see what happens in heaven is this great choir of angels singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Where we don't see the holiness of God because of a veil that is over our eyes, these angels worshipped at His throne. They saw the unveiled glory of God. Yet, as the Bible tells us, they sinned. We don't know a lot about these fallen angels, but we we know from the Bible that their sin was the sin of pride. You see, that, that throne that they spent day in and day out worshiping before, crying, holy, 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 as they saw God's justice and power and glory before them, they wanted that very throne. 
They envied the power that God had. They wanted to be God. The Bible tells us, doesn't it, that proximity to God does not guarantee enduring faithfulness. Just because you think you're close to God doesn't mean you're safe from sin. Position doesn't change that. These folks were before the the throne of God. Position. But yet, they wandered. They wandered from the glory of God into their own self-proclaimed glory. And so often in our own lives we see this truth that proximity to power often leads to our own downfall. If the point that Peter is making here is vividly clear, God did not spare those who were closest to Him. God did not turn a blind eye to those ministering spirits. His own servants that waited on Him Day in and day out. From eternity past. We don't know how long it was that God created them. God did not spare those closest to Him. And He will not spare you either. If you choose to live in willful rebellion against Him. From the greatest in power to the least. Those who rebel will be punished. And this is a promise from God. But not only does these angels being condemned to hell offer a piece of evidence, we see also in verse 5, Peter offers yet a second piece of historical evidence. God judged the ungodly through the flood. In verse 5 he says, If if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah and herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The flood we know is the act of God's judgment against the ancient world. A world filled with unrighteous rebellion against God. The Bible records their their horrible and awful and grotesque sins against God. For which we really don't need to spend much time. Needless to say, they were really, really bad. But frankly, not much different than us. And in the world we live. They lived the the way they wanted without regard to God or His law, and they were judged for it. The flood is really what you'll find in reading Peter's literature and letters is that, is that this is really a favorite theme for Peter. He mentioned it in 1 Peter chapter 3. He'll mention it later here in chapter 3 of 2 Peter. The flood is, is really this favorite picture of Peter because it demonstrates God's just judgment of sinners. There was no mincing words, no confusion, no innocent person somewhere out there on some island. No, it's well documented through the writings of Moses that these men and women were wicked. Jesus himself often appealed to the flood as a reminder of God's just judgment. For example, in, in Luke chapter 17 and verse 26, there, Peter, or there Jesus exhorts his followers to live in preparation for the day of judgment. And he uses this as an illustration. And I just wonder if Peter doesn't have this in the back of his mind, remembering what the Lord said to him that day in Luke chapter 17. Here, what, Jesus, what Luke records, Jesus' words. 
just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. There will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, not let the one who is in the field not turn back. Says, don't go get your stuff. Your stuff ain't worth it. You're going to die. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Jesus warns his disciples not to be engrossed with the things of this world because if you do, like Lot's friends and his wife, you will perish. And so here we see that God demonstrated His just judgment in verse 5 when He destroyed the world because of unrighteousness. God was just in that. Every one of those creatures was deserving of His just judgment. And then thirdly, we see in verse verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Moses records for us in Genesis the vile and wicked acts of those who lived in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's so fascinating, even if uh, you're here today and you've never read the Bible, I bet you you've heard of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, or you've le- least heard Sodomite before. An expression that we use to talk about the vilest kind of sin that one could commit. These cities, we know, are ones that Abraham's nephew Lot went to go live in. You'll remember from the story, Abraham and Lot became so big, so blessed, that Lot had to leave. They were herdsmen and they couldn't, they were just tearing up the land. There was too much. And Abraham's shepherds and Lot's shepherds, they were getting in fights all the time. So they had, to, they had to part ways. And we know that Lot went on to live there in Sodom and Gomorrah in those twin cities. And in a memorable passage, we know that Abraham, when he was visited by the Lord, along with angels, that he cried out to the Lord, please spare these cities for the sake of my nephew Lot. He goes to that fortunate prayer where he cries out, If there's 50 righteous, will you spare the city? And golly, I'll spare it. If there's 45 righteous, will you spare it? And he goes all the way down to five. If there's just a few people, will you spare the city? And God in his merciful act spares Lot, as we'll see in a moment. He rescues him. But see, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was a living illustration In fact, one that the nation of Israel would always remember, always by the prophets, be called to be reminded by, so that the Jewish people would know how God would deal with their sinful rebellion. I mean, after all, think about it. They're in the wilderness of Sinai. They're traveling to the promised land, and Moses writes down this story as he's revealed it from heaven. He writes it down to him, and God's purpose in this is to warn God's people not to go the way of the Canaanite people. 
Because after all, Sodom and Gomorrah were of the Canaanite people. The point is clear. God justly judges wicked sinners. But as we'll see, these past judgments were really only a foreshadow of what will come. That's what he says. He says, listen, this is just an example. An example. God made an example out of these people. For not only the Israelites, but for us today. They lived in luxury and prosperity without any demonstration that God's judgment was coming upon them. But we must not conclude that when people live in luxury, that when people live in prosperity and happiness, that everything is good in their life. It is dangerous for us as Christians to look at external things like material wealth and physical health as a measure of God's love for us. So when we're healthy, God must be okay with us. When we're sick, God must be judging us. Well, that might be true, but that may not be true. There are many, many who have lived in prosperity and physical and material wealth Many who have ruled kingdoms and have more than we can even imagine, but yet ruled unrighteously and unjustly and died in good old age. You think about the rulers in, in some of the communist countries, 80, 90 years old before they die. Where is God's justice in this? Where is God's judgment? You see, the Bible reminds us, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. In the the end, all things will be exposed, the Bible says. We must not think because justice is delayed that there will be no justice at all. But we trust that there is a day, as we heard in Revelation 20, when everything is coming out of the closet. Every quiet thought, every evil deed, every whisper told, every lie upon our lips, every wicked thought you've ever had, every evil deed done, one day will be brought into the life, whether you are a Christian or not. God's judgment is true. And this promise that we can trust and depend upon That God is just leads us then to verse 9. So we're going to go back and look at these verses again from the second side of God's character. But here we just want to see in verse 9 how then Peter concludes based on these. He says, look, if this is true and this is true and this is true, then verse 9, then the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Some may be confused, maybe not thinking God's very good at his job. Peter settles the point, doesn't he? He says, I think God knows what he's doing. God's past judgment demonstrates that he kind of knows what's going on. In other words, Peter is saying, listen, you unrighteous people, hey, you false teachers, God is coming for you. God is coming for you to judge you in your unrighteousness. And Peter's point here is to teach Christians is that God's past judgment is a promise, a guarantee of his future judgment of the ungodly. We must must not grow weary. We must not lose hope. 
God's past judgment is a foreshadow of His future judgment of sinners. Brothers and sisters, this should lead us towards a deep sense of humility and reverence of God. We should not be in awe, afraid, but we should be aware of God's judgment of sinners. Frankly, it should bring the fear of God into us. We understand that God is not playing games with unrighteous people. You may have convinced yourself that how you're living is okay. You may have coached yourself well over the years, numbed your heart to your rebelliousness. But it doesn't matter. In the end, God will expose your unrighteousness. The Bible clearly tells us that we are deserving of God's righteous judgment. We deserve death. Our sins, each one of them, has sentenced us, all of us, to eternal death. So if you're here this morning, you're thinking, man, those Christians are really hard. They're always talking about sin, and they're always talking about their own failings. It's because we're not afraid to be real about our own sinful, wicked hearts. Because we know that God has done something for us through Christ. That God would condemn you. And friend, I wonder, do you agree with that? Do you believe that God would condemn you? That God would wipe away women and children as they were washed away in the flood? Or consider those crying and weeping mothers as that fire spread throughout the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Is this your God? God who did not punish any innocent person that day. A God who would never condemn a single innocent soul to hell. The problem is, there's only been one innocent man. The man, Jesus Christ. The one who lived a perfect life of righteousness. Who perfectly obeyed his father. Who never, never spoke a word against a friend of gossip. Never, never tore anyone down. Never committed any heinous sin. Never committed a single sin. He died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for our sin, so that all those who would trust in His sacrifice for our sin could have eternal life. But friend, the God who sent His Son is the same God who poured out His wrath upon His Son for our sin, for our iniquity. You may deny that there is no judgment day. You may say, you know what, you all are crazy. I can live however I want, I can do whatever I want. But friends, God's past performance, His past actions demonstrate that He will judge sinners. And we can count on that. We can depend upon that. And as Christians, judgments like these do not cause our hearts to swell in pride by pointing the finger at others. No, rather it offers sober humility. We recognize our need again, don't we, for the blood of Christ? 
We recognize that the ancient world is our world. Our world. Not not their world. It's our world. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Man, that's where our house was. We used to walk those streets. We used to hang out with those guys in their late night parties they used to have in the city square. We, we lived there and we loved it. But God in His gracious mercy for us found us out. He came there and He rescued us and saved us. God transformed us. Friends, we must never confuse being delivered with being deserving. We must never confuse those two things. We have been delivered through the blood of Christ, but we were not deserving. Friends, what we deserve is verse 4. To be chained, to be cast into hell, and committed to chains of gloomy darkness. That's what we deserve. But God in His grace rescued us. Well, this leads us then to our second point. God is not only a just judge, but He is a merciful and gracious Savior. The Bible always tells you bad news before it gets to the good news. Because if we're confused about the bad news, well, let's be honest, it's not going to be good news to us. It'll just be news. It'll just be some information for which we read and it's not really that important. But if you truly believe in God's judgment, that you deserve it, well then it's really good news when God shows up and He rescues you out of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see here in verses 5 and 7 two pieces of evidence from God's past rescue missions. God went on two rescue missions. First He rescued Noah and then He rescued Lot. God, we are told in verse 5, preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. He preserved him, a righteous man who sought to live his life by following God. Oh, you might know the story well. Noah was to build the ark when it was dry. Everybody laughing. Are you crazy, Noah? What are you doing down here, Noah? Why are you building a boat in the middle of the desert? Are you crazy? You lost your mind, Noah. But Noah persevered. While the world around him lived in licentiousness and sin, Noah endured. Noah persevered. Noah may have seemed foolish to the world around him. He may have seemed like a freak, like a weirdo who goes to church on Sunday, who worships God, who sets aside their schedule so that they can give glory to God and to Him alone. Who gives our money to the church after all? But he remained faithful. And he built the ark, a picture of God's protection from the waters of judgment. God went on a rescue mission and he saved righteous Noah. But we're told also in verses 7 and 8 that God went on another rescue mission. And he rescued righteous Lot. He saved Lot from his own judgment. Now some of you, if you know your Bibles well, will be quite confused by Peter, as I am. When he calls Lot righteous. Lot was far from being a righteous man. But what are we to conclude from this? Was Lot saved because he was righteous? 
Was Noah saved because he was righteous? Was Abraham saved because he was righteous? No, the Bible says that you are made righteous by faith. They were sinners in need of a Savior. After all, what did Noah do when he got off the boat? He built, planted some seeds, had a vineyard, took his time with his sin. He, he played with his sin. He, he was intentional in his sin. I'm a, I mean, that's some serious waiting to sin against God. He said, I'm going to sin, but I'm going to do it the right way. I'm going to do it slowly. And he sinned against God. He got drunk. And what did Olot do? He got wasted out of his mind and participated in incest with his daughters. Righteous men? These are the ones that God saves? I thought God only saved holy people and righteous people, good people. You know, the ones that, you know, walk on the right side of the street and do the right deeds and vote for the right party and the right president. I thought God only saved good people. Well, friends, that's not the God of the Bible. That's the God of your own imagination, I think. Frankly, for Lot, you could take the man out of the city, but you can't take the city out of the man, could you? He was a just He was just as wicked as they were. He deserved to die in Sodom and Gomorrah just as much as everyone else. And more could be said we we don't have time to look at with Abraham and his substitutionary prayer on behalf of Lot. A picture of Jesus praying on behalf of us before his father forgive them for they know not what they do. But nonetheless, we see that Lot was affected by the sin of those around him. His soul was affected by sin. Yes, he may not have been as wicked, but he was wicked nonetheless. But we see here in this passage, and boy, we could talk about this much, but, but the depravity of others so much affects us, does it not? But we see here in verse 9 the promise of God's future reckoning. Rescue missions. These two examples of Lot and of Noah serve as a promise that God is good at rescuing sinners and He's not done rescuing sinners today. That God has rescued sinners from the most deplorable situations in the past and your situation, frankly, isn't as bad. God gives us the pinnacle, the the peak of of some of the most horrid sinners in all the Bible as a reminder to us, as a promise to us, as a guarantee that your life isn't that messed up and that He can rescue you. So wherever you are today, and whatever trial you're in, friend, brother and sister, listen to these words. Let them get deep into your heart. Verse 9 Then the Lord knows. The Lord knows. What a sweet word. The Lord knows. He's always known. He knows where you are, where you are at. He knows the struggles you're facing. He knows the mess you've made of your life. God knows. He knows the secret sins of your heart. He knows the burdens you have. 
Moms, he knows those burdens you have for caring for your children every day. Tired and exhausted. Grandparents, God knows that you weep over the loss of your family members, over your children and grandchildren. It grieves you every Lord's Day you come without them here. God knows. God knows all things. But, but what we see here isn't that God's knowledge is just like He knows a few facts about you. But God's knowledge is effectual. It's effective. It brings about change. God knows how to rescue the godly. He knows how to do it because He's done it millions upon millions of times. From the darkest streets from the deepest sins. God knows how to rescue you. He knows how to pull you up out of the depth of despair. He knows how to rescue you from your wickedness and sin. And all He does is says, trust me. Trust I know what I'm doing. Many years ago, I had this foolish idea that I could be a paramedic. And so, in God's kind providence of, of His, He allowed me to venture out in that world. And I spent a couple years working as an EMT and going to paramedic school and seeing some really crazy things. And in all the hope of really following my father in the footsteps of being a, a firefighter. And one of the things you learn early on when you, whether it's learning to be a nurse or a doctor or an EMT, a paramedic, a lifeguard, or a first responder, is that re those that, that need to be rescued often think they can rescue themselves. They think that they have the mental capacity to fix their problems. We have a few nurses here today. I'm sure they're, they've had a few patients that, that thought they knew what they needed, what drugs they needed to take and how to take them. There are many of you who have been to the doctor and told your doctor, this is what I need to do. And this is how what I need. Yeah. The doctor just looks at you, okay, sure, if you say so. And friends, I remember so often many patients just knew what they needed before they would allow us to help them. And the Bible tells us that, that we're the same way, that we are not able to save ourselves. There is no capacity in you, no power in you, no amount of strength in you that will rescue yourself from the depth of your own sinful heart. Heart is dead. You don't need CPR, friend. You need a new heart. You need a transplant. And the last time I checked, that would just be some science fiction weirdo kind of stuff if you were doing a heart transplant on yourself. You can't. So stop. Do you believe that God can rescue you from the trials in your life? You see, when you, can, when you think you can rescue yourself, you don't have a need for Jesus. You have no need to sing a song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Every care. You don't need Jesus. You've got it. You're okay. Friends, you're not okay. 
trust His power to be able to push back the winds and the waves. Trust that God and Him alone can bring you safely home. When we rightly understand both God's just judgment of sin and His gracious mercy towards sinner, then, and then only, will we see that God is merciful. Our character should reflect the character of God in our lives. When we recognize that we are saved by grace and by grace alone, well then we just become people of grace, agents of grace. It means we're willing to forgive those who sin against us. This means that we're patient with those who maybe are spiritually immature. We don't cast them aside, but we graciously help them follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, as we see God's character, we understand that our character should reflect that. We shouldn't reflect the character of these false teachers who lived a life of licentiousness and rebelliousness, but rather that of our Lord, gracious and merciful. Brothers and sisters, God is unchanging. His past rescue missions serve as a perpetual and enduring example of His future rescue of sinners from His own destruction. Brothers and sisters, there are many seductive voices in this world calling you to follow them. From political pundits to powerful vices. From voices of reason to moral compromises. We face many temptations To walk away from the clear biblical truth that the judgment of God is a certain reality. Are you convinced this morning that one day the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise and we will stand before the judgment of God? Those who are without God will stand and be cast into an eternal place called hell. May each of us be certain that this day is coming quickly and swiftly upon us. May the fear of God be in us as we trust His only remedy for our sin. And may we join the the angels in heaven crying, Holy, Holy, Holy is our Lord God Almighty. In the words of David Helm, we must curb our worldly appetites And back away from the boundaries of this world's table. After all, a better feast awaits you in heaven. Let's pray. Eternal Father in heaven. Much, much greater things could be said from your word today. We sense a palpable hunger. A deep abiding desire. Our bellies hungering for you and your word. We pray that your spirit would seal us in your word. We desire the faith to follow you. We pray that you would give us the strength to obey you this day. Help us, Lord, in our walk with you. Let us not be confused about your just judgment, but find relief and rescue Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. To this end we pray. Amen.